And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. Instead of taking up that gym membership that you wouldn't use even if the gyms were open, how's about subscribing to The Athletic for just £4 a month? You'll get unrivaled football coverage with analysis and in-depth features from the very best writers around, exclusive Q&As with Athletic staff, and ad-free versions of all The Athletic's podcasts, including this one. Find out more and sign up today at theathletic.com forward slash league show. Hello there, welcome. Thanks for joining us on this week's Totally Football League show, Extra Time. I'm Ali Maxwell, joining you this week alongside me as ever. The Paul Cook rumour to my vacant managerial position. What a way to bring in George Ellick. George, how are you doing this week? Yeah, I'm good, although I'm a bit concerned that Paul Cook's turning into the modern day Alan Kerbishley, which I think would be a bit harsh because he deserves a job. He's not being respected, is he? He's not being respected. And, And sometimes I feel like... You don't get as respected as you should do in this industry either. I'd certainly be offering you more than the pithy six-month deal uh, that Paul Cook was reportedly offered by Cardiff City. Good time to mention them because, of course, they'll be a big part of the show this week, George. What have we got coming up? Yeah, we're going to be discussing your last-minute transfer requests. Of course, the window is going to slam shut next week and Paul Lambert leaving Ipswich does not count as one of them, I'm afraid. We're going to be looking ahead with our sponsors Paddy Power to the weekend's action with three games that we think are the the best of the best in each three leagues. But first, there's been plenty of midweek action to get stuck into and that is where we head next. Now sir, remember a tattoo is permanent so tell me one more time what you want. Uh, well, I want Bruno Fernandes knocking a liver bird off its perch with a free kick, with Oli as a kind of, like, god in the sky. Oh, and Champions 2021 on top as well. I can't see anything going wrong there, Man United fan. But if things don't go exactly as expected, Paddy Power's Acker Insurance gets you a free bet if one leg of your 4-plus fold Acker lets you down. Paddy Power! Max free bet £10, min odds 1 to 5 on each leg. Online exclusive, excludes shop bets, excludes enhanced match odds. T's and C's apply, 18+, begamalaware.org. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic. This is the Totally Football League show Extra Time with George Ellick and Ali Maxwell. Yes, plenty of action in midweek. And when that's the case, we hand out the awards for the team, the player and the manager of the midweek action for each division in the EFL. George, let's kick off with the Championship Team of the Week. Yeah, it has to be Rotherham, of course, going up to Middlesbrough and winning 3-0 last night. A a result and a performance that not many of us necessarily expected. And quite often you find when there is a surprise result and a team batters another one when they're the big outsiders, you look into the game and it kind of turns out that actually they took all of their chances. The home team had loads of them. That wasn't the case here. Rotherham were really good value for their 3-0 victory over a side in Middlesbrough who have struggled in their last few games at home. They've lost three in a row. But before that were 
one of, if not the strongest team in the championship when playing at home. They missed chances before going ahead. You know, Matt Crooks, who scored the first goal, he missed a much easier chance at nil-nil to go ahead. And it was an all-round team performance as well. This wasn't just the attacking players causing problems. Uh, Borough had their chances, as you'd expect. Jamal Blackman made a couple of really big saves to keep the score, well, to keep Rotherham first level and then ahead. So this is a side, Rotherham now, who... I think most people who don't follow the championship particularly closely would have a look at the league table and see them down towards the bottom and think, well, yes, this is Rotherham. This is what they do. They get promoted from League One. They go into the championship. Then they get relegated back into League One and then they get promoted again. But this Rotherham side is very, very different to the last one that we saw a couple of seasons ago that did get relegated. Paul Warren was the manager then and he's the manager now. But this is a side, even though they are in 22nd position with 23 points from 23 games, they're a nightmare to play against because they play... This brand of high-intensity pressing football, it doesn't give opposition time to play, to play the way that they want to play. They're basically the championship's disruptors. And even though they've only won six games this season, we're seeing those performances earlier in the campaign that didn't necessarily yield the points they deserved starting to translate into that. You know, they've scored three goals against a Borough side who under Neil Warnock don't concede many goals. They scored three goals in a 3 all draw recently against Stoke, another one of the meanest defences in the championship. So they're a side who don't really have any right in terms of the, the wage bill, the players maybe they've got at their disposal to be beating teams like Borough 3-0 away from home. And this is a unit rather than that, you know, this is not a one-man team by any stretch. This is a unit who are performing admirably under the increasingly expert <laughs> you know, guide of, of Paul Warren. So hats off to Rotherham. I think they're going to make a real fist to this survival bid this season. And if they continue to perform like they did on Wednesday night, I think a few more sides further up the table are going to come unstuck when they face them. Absolutely magnificent performance. I loved Neil Warnock bigging up Rotherham's 38-year-old centre-back, Richard Wood, after the game. You know, you look at your old Woody at the back and... He breaks out from our corner kick and he ends up on their six-yard box and he's 38-year-old into you, something like that. That's what you need and that's what he's got. Uh, I wish one or two of our lads were like that, one or two of the younger lads. As for our Player of the Week in the Championship, I'm going to give it to Famara Jeju. Uh, I should say that on Wednesday night, Callum O'Hare of Coventry pushed him very close with two uh, assists, the first of which was eye-catching and was the, the real only, you'd say, moment of true quality in that game between Coventry and Sheffield Wednesday. And it was enough to give Cov the lead that they held on to. But for Jeju, scoring a brace, two goals that were enough to get Bristol City past Huddersfield, despite a wave of Terriers' pressure throughout that game. The funny thing to start with here is that Jeju might not have been on the pitch for more than about five minutes had there been a stricter referee in charge. An early tackle on Bakuna was pretty violent, I would say, certainly pushing the boundaries of dangerous play, potentially one of those where it was so early in the game that the referee didn't want to send him off. But I think if Bakuna had made more of a meal of it, not that I'm saying we would like to see that, but as something we see quite often, then Jeju could have been in trouble. But no issues there for him and his two first half goals. What struck me about them was that they were quite un-Famara Jeju-like goals. I think of him scoring thumping headers, spectacular volleys as well. Quite often, it, he strikes me as the sort of striker that, that probably finishes better on impulse than when he's got time to think about this. But these were two lovely finishes. The first one, a lovely fake shot when one-on-one -on -one with the keeper sat the keeper down on his backside. He went round him and rolled it in. The second one, really good movement, found well by Casey Palmer and a fine finish across the keeper. The relevance of this is heightened by the fact that 
Jeju's contract situation is kind of the main topic at the moment in Bristol City circles. He's in the final six months of his contract with Bristol City and he's not signed a new deal. Despite the club making him several offers, one of which Mark Ashton, the sporting director, said is one of the biggest contract offers that this football club has ever made to a player ever. Really hammering home that point. Ever, ever, ever. Yeah, it's a really interesting one because he's only started seven games this season, Jeju, and, and it's clear on nights like this what he can bring to a team, but he's basically got 12 or 13 goals every season that he's played for Bristol City. It's a, it's a decent return and he brings more to the team than just goals. But looking at their squad and specifically the contract lengths of other forward players like Chris Martin, Naki Wells, Antoine Semenyo, the young uh, star, I don't personally see much point in them breaking their wage structure to keep him at his age at 28 you'd think that his agent would be looking for a two or three year deal as well I mean I do like Jeju but if Bristol City are going to break into the top six in the next few seasons which has to be their objective I'm not sure he would be a number one option up top for a top 16 that that's just my opinion as long as he's motivated to play like he did in midweek I say stand your ground and, and sort of revisit this towards the end of the season regardless two goals for Jeju in midweek winning goals you have to say he's our player of the midweek in the championship which leads us George on to the gaffer of midweek in the championship yeah and this is going to be quite short and out of no disrespect at all to the manager of the midweek, who is Mick McCarthy. Welcome hey. back to the EFL, Mick McCarthy, whose Cardiff side came back from 2-0 down against Barnsley to score two goals and draw the game 2 all. Unsurprisingly, both were indirectly from set pieces, which maybe we'd come to expect from a Mick McCarthy side, even though he hasn't been there for that long. And I do think that as a manager, when your side comes back from a losing position, I think you deserve some of the credit because tactical tweaks and, and personnel changes will influence that in itself. Now, the reason before Cardiff fans get very annoyed that we're going to move on to League One pretty quickly here is because we are talking about Cardiff in depth later on. And I know, Ali, you've done a lot of prep work on that, so I'm not going to tread on your toes too much. But th there wasn't a great deal of um, of options here. You know, you mentioned... Bristol City and um, I don't think Dean Holden himself would, would think that the manner of victory against Huddersfield who had plenty of options to get back into the game would would mean necessitate him getting it Mark Robbins you know we, we could probably call this award the Mark Robbins award the amount of times he's already won it this season so Mick McCarthy winning it first up and we're going to talk more about Cardiff later but on then to League One where again Tuesday night was very very busy and the team of the week you were spoiled for choice. Yeah, so many options here, I must say. Sometimes you're kind of clutching at straws, depending on what's happened in the midweek action, but not this week in League One. Spoiled for choice, I'm going to go with Plymouth Argyle. Now, it may have been only, with all due respect, a relegation-threatened Swindon side that they beat 2-0 in midweek, but they get a huge multiplier of credit due to the distance travelled in the last week. Last midweek, Argyle travelled to Sunderland, more than 800 miles round trip, winning 2-1 at the Stadium of Light. Then they went to Sheffield United on the weekend in the FA Cup and ran them close. That was a 572-mile round trip. <laughs> and this midweek, comparatively short in their terms, but still very long in my eyes, 320-mile round trip to Wiltshire to take on Swindon. And they were comfortably the better side. They won this uh, barely breaking a sweat, you have to say. I mean, those... Coach trips. I know it sounds like a weird thing to say, but I know what my body feels like after a long drive, what that does to your legs, your back, your neck. And, you know, to, to have to do that three times in a week after significant journeys and to basically 
be bang at it to hit high performance levels, I think is really, really impressive. I also would love to know just how much football managers some of those lads have played on the bus in the last week or so. Um, I was thrilled for Ryan Hardy. He is the striker that plays up front with the young star, Luke Jeffcott, who gets all the headlines at the moment. But it's Hardy's unselfish movement that probably has helped Jeffcott score a large part of his goals. Hardy's goal here was only his third of the season, but he has got five assists as well. And Ryan Lowe was quick to praise him, which is absolutely right. Uh, and hopefully his confidence will will show itself in the goal column more over the next few weeks. The other goal scorer, Panuche Kamara, he's been on great form as well and seems to be settling into life in League One very nicely after a few seasons catching the eye with Crawley in League Two. Um, but don't forget that Argyle lost six in a row in the league across November and December. They couldn't keep a clean sheet for love nor money. And the fans who are not used to this under Ryan Lowe, they were getting a little bit twitchy. So the recent form is a welcome response. They hadn't won away from home at all in the league until that Sunderland game last week. They are very much back in business now, just on the cusp of the top half. Argyle, our team of the midweek. What about player in League One? Was this an easy decision or a tough one? It was fairly easy for me. Uh, I watched the um, I watched the game between Rochdale and Oxford on Tuesday evening, and it was an incredible game. I mean, I am tempted now just to buy a Rochdale kind of season ticket on iFollow and watch all of their games in full because their style of football, as we discussed with Brian Barry Murphy on this podcast, their manager a couple of weeks ago, um, is entertaining to say the least. They they attack whenever possible and are very, very open at the back. And this game finished 4-3 to Oxford with a Olamide Shadipo 35-yard chip over the <laughs> keeper who made a mistake about a minute after a Rochdale player himself had tried to lob Jack Stevens and the Oxford goal from about 55 yards. It was one of those <laughs> games. But Shadipo isn't the player. It goes to a player who didn't even start the game in James Henry. Now, James Henry has been a very important player for Oxford over the last three or four seasons, normally playing on the right-hand side of a 4-2-3-1, but often coming in to us now, you know, because he's never been the quickest player, but he doesn't really have the pace to go around the outside or cut inside players, full-backs now on the right-hand side. So he's coming into a more central midfield role. You know, you and I did our League One team of the season for the Athletic at the end of last season, or at least when the season ended in March. And James Henry was in that, and he was a very influential player for a team who got to the, the playoff final uh, although losing to Wickham. He has not been in the same form this season and he's faced a lot of criticism from fans about his performances, not necessarily the effort that's gone into them, but just people concerned, fans concerned that he's not influencing games as he once did. He's not creating as many chances. His link-up play with Matt Taylor, which was so important last season, has been on the wane. So he was dropped for this game and comes on at half-time with the score 2-1 to Rochdale and makes such an immediate impact. The second goal for Oxford, an equaliser for Elliot Moore, came from a set-piece delivery from James Henry. Oxford set-piece delivery prior to that in the game hadn't been particularly good, so an immediate impact. But then the goal of the game, even better than Shadipo's 35-yard lob over the keeper, was James Henry absolutely smashing the ball into... I mean, you can't really even call it the top corner. He kind of smashed it into the roof of the net from about 30 yards. A finish and a strike that I think came with quite a lot of frustration over the season he's had so far, over the manager's decision to drop him for the game. And yeah, I, I think the manner of his performance, the way that he came back into the side, the fact that he got a goal and assist in a win coming from behind, um, he's deserving of this award. And he's a player that, um, that Oxford fans will hope shows that level of form throughout the season because, you know, it's it's six league games in a row that Oxford have won now. 
suddenly fans, managers, players are talking about looking up towards the playoffs and having a player like Henry playing like that will only help their cause. Absolute scenes at the end of that Oxford-Rochdale game. Incredible stuff. (laughs) Um, Our manager of the midweek in League One is Gillingham boss Steve Evans. Jill's beat crew 4-1. And and for me, the reason why Evans is the manager of the week rather than perhaps Jill's being the team of the week is that it was his brave tactical game plan carried out perfectly by his team, I should say, but that was what gave them such a resounding win. And that's what I think caught crew Alexander Cold here. If you look at the metric PPDA, which stands for passes per defensive action, it's a proxy basically for seeing how intense a team's press is in any individual game. And the lower the number, so the fewer passes the opposition string together on average per interception, tackle, foul, challenge, also known as defensive actions. Um, That can give you a good idea of of press intensity. And Jules are not a team that press with great intensity every single game. They pick the games to do it. And this was in their top three pressiest games of the season, if you look at PPDA. I think it's very brave against a crew side who are known for building the ball up from the back, for Ryan Wintle particularly dropping deep to start moves, dictate play, um, ping diagonal balls out to Charlie Kirk on the left or out to the right flank as well. But they didn't let crew play at all here. Wintle couldn't get on the ball because of the intensity of Ginningham's press. You just have to look at the goals to see this borne out. You don't have to look at PPDA uh, or the underlying metrics. The first goal, Slattery won the ball high up the pitch. Uh, Graham won a penalty off the back of it, which was scored. The second goal, again, it was Jordan Graham who disrupted a pass from Beckles. Dempsey drove forward from midfield, found Graham, and his cross was finished by Ollie Lee. And the third goal, still in the first half here, it was Beckles giving it away again. Dempsey charging forward and firing in. So 3-0 at halftime, Evans' game plan worked to perfection. In the second half, they went 4-0 up thanks to a long throw, a big flick and a thumping header, which feels very Steve Evans as well. So, you know, Jills went into this one in the bottom half and Crew hadn't lost to a team in the bottom half before this game. They have now, resoundingly, and in doing so, Jills themselves moved into that top half. So well done, Steve Evans. A brave game plan, executed brilliantly. And I think a big reason why Jills were were able to dispose of this talented crew Alexandra side. Okay, George, League Two, team of the midweek, another side that had a long old trip and left with all three. Yeah, Morecambe on their way down to Exeter. And you, you, Ali, because you sometimes know what you're talking about, you sent me a text on the morning of the game saying, quite fancy Morecambe to beat Exeter tonight, but I'm a bit worried about that long journey. And you can imagine (laughs) why, but your concerns about the coach trip, you're obviously thinking a lot about coach trips at the moment. Maybe it's uh, because you're cooped up at home (laughs) dreaming of playing football manager whilst traveling across the country to watch football. Um, I think any, any side basically who keep a clean sheet against Exeter deserve credit because Exeter score a lot of goals. At home, they score even more. You know, they haven't drawn a blank at home since the opening day of the season against Port Vale, where they lost 2-0. Since then, they put three past Gunthorpe, six past Colchester, five past Tranmere. And last time we saw them at home, just three days before this game, they beat Stevenage 3-1. They're a side with so many attacking qualities. And, you know, under Matt Taylor, a given licence to really push forward and try and blast teams away. Not many teams are going to do that to Morecambe and with Derek Adams in charge, they're a side who seem to they seem to fool the opposition into thinking they're on top. You know, Morecambe are so happy to sit deep in games and allow the opposition to keep the ball 
without really creating many goal-scoring opportunities. They know they've got enough quality going forwards to cause any side's problems. Carlos Mendes Gomez and Adam Phillips combined brilliantly for the first goal in order to create the penalty, which was then put away himself by Phillips. And those are two players, you know, they are probably the key attacking forces for this Morecambe team who combine so well so often. I know, Ali, you're big fans of them as well. Carl yes, Stockton sir. got the second, who who's a striker who probably should score more than he does for Morecambe, but Morecambe you know, fans and, uh, and Derek Adams will be relieved to see him get on the score sheet here. This was basically a pretty no-frills win. I mean, Exeter had some chances in the game, as you'd expect, but they didn't create plenty. And Morecambe created the best in the game to win the match. Uh, Andreas in, in goal for Morecambe was another hero for them, keeping Exeter at bay when needing to. But for Morecambe side, who still don't seem to be viewed by many as one of the better teams in the division, and after suffering what was a bit of a mini-wobble in the last couple of weeks, even though the performances alongside the maybe disappointing results weren't too troubling. You know, they had the better of the game against Walsall at home. Again, they drew one all. They were okay at Leighton Orient in the game. They lost 2-0. Back-to-back wins against Colchester and Exeter of an aggregate 5-0 suggest they are back to where they want to be. And anybody who isn't taking them seriously yet, anyone who doesn't think that they are possibly a team who could break into League One next season, maybe automatically, you should have a look at the table because they are sitting third and they're there on merit. So all credit to them. Yeah, I think if anybody thought they were a flash in the pan, going to Exeter on a Tuesday night, putting in such an accomplished display and winning the game on merit should show that they are, yeah, they're a team to <laughs> to take seriously now in League Two. Up the shrimps indeed. Our player of the midweek in League Two is Scunthorpe striker Ryan Loft, who scored two goals in a 2-0 win against Port Vale. And this is off the back of a brilliant performance, leading the line in a strong derby win against Grimsby Town on the weekend. Loft got a goal and an assist in that game as well. Uh, his first goal here is everything you want from a League Two striker. Strength uh, to roll the defender, the speed to knock it past him and get there first and the finish as well, low and hard across the keeper into the far corner. His second goal, uh, George, bit of role play here for you. Okay. Uh, if you and I are playing for the same team, let's say we're playing for Scunny, and you're up top and I'm in midfield and I burst forward and take a shot from just outside the box, what are you meant to do? Chase it down. Run at the keeper. Follow it in. Yeah. Follow it in because you never know, especially in League Two, where the parry will end up. The keeper pushed it straight out and there was Loft arriving in front of the defender to fire home for his second. I mean, when I say his first goal was everything you want to see from a League Two striker, Loft is one of many League Two strikers who can do it in flashes. But the reason they play in League Two rather than in, in a division above is because they are not consistent enough. And Neil Cox said after the game, sometimes Lofty does really well in games and sometimes he lets himself down. And I can really <laughs> relate to that. Sometimes I feel like I do good pods. Sometimes I feel like I let myself down. But I think we all learn a lesson from Loft's second goal. Just keep following it. <laughs> keep following it in. Keep gambling you will get your rewards. There's definitely a good League Two striker in there. He's still only 23. Plenty of time to develop. Now let's see what Loft can do on Friday night. High on confidence after two good performances and three goals in that time against a Colchester side with no confidence whatsoever. I'm looking forward to seeing how our player of the midweek in League Two follows that up on Friday night, which leads us, George, with... Manager of the midweek or managers of the midweek oh, because this nice. is going to Bradford's are they still interim managers I know they've got the job till the end of the season haven't they um, Mark Truman and Connor Sellers they beat Southend 3-1 which on the face of it might look like 
a regulation win for an informed team going away to the bottom of the league side. But we know that Southend haven't been that poor in recent weeks. And I think this this managerial duo deserve this accolade for what they've done generally. And we haven't really spoken about it enough on this podcast because they've come into a side in Bradford who are really struggling. They obviously had a very experienced manager previously in Stuart McCall, who, you know, if anybody knows how to manage Bradford, it is him having done it 15,000 times. But you look at what they've done in terms of the players and the personnel involved here. Callum Cook, with the two assists on the day, is a player who's really struggled for form at times this season, really improving now under Truman and Sellers. Danny Rowe scored his first goal for the club, having been signed by Truman and Sellers in this window, signing from Oldham. He had a a brilliant goal-scoring record at AFC Fylde. It didn't really happen for him at Oldham, but Mark Truman was very clear when he signed him, a 31-year-old, saying, this is a player who can score a lot of goals for us and immediately coming up with the goods in just his second matches. Truman and Sellers themselves, they're youth team coaches. They're 32 and 29 years old. They, they wow. spent their playing career in non-league and they have been thrust into the deep end here, thrust under the spotlight and are doing incredibly well. And they deserve all the credit for it. I mean, I, I, I worry for them that the expectations are very quickly risen given you know, the size of the club that Bradford is, given maybe the pre-season expectations as well. But certainly they've steadied the ship and are showing at the moment that they deserve to have the faith retained in them by Bradford, at least for the time being. So credit to Truman and Sellers, my managers of the midweek. George, any existential crisis for yourself, given that probably for the first time in your life now, if you were appointed a shock appointment, as it would be, as an EFL manager, you wouldn't be the youngest EFL manager in the 72. Yes. Now that you mention it, that that is upsetting. <laughs> I still have to work out that if I was going to be, you know, if I was up playing up front for Scunthorpe, as you mentioned, and I was following it in, I'd be a senior pro. And that yeah. is hard to wrap my head around. But thank you for bringing it up on the podcast. My pleasure. Well, what a fun whiz through the midweek action in the EFL. Never disappoints. Uh, always a rife debate as well. We'd love to know if you think we've got this wrong, if we've missed an amazing team player or manager performance in the midweek. Do let us know on Twitter. One thing you have been letting us know on there is which last minute transfers your club needs to do before the deadline smashes shut. Is that a phrase? Smashes shut on Monday night. Sounds right. And those are on the way next. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is the Totally Football League Show Extra Time, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. We put the siren out on social media asking for your last minute transfer requests and you did not let us down. So thank you very much, Ali. We've been through them. You got first run this week after I did a couple of weeks ago, which is a bit of a blow for me, but we'll get to that later. What has taken your fancy? 
Yeah, so first and foremost, as ever, we've got some funny responses. There's no way that you can put something like this out there on social media and not get a couple of wags chiming in. And off the back of what you said about Morecambe, we've got a very happy Morecambe fan in Matt who said, <laughs> we don't need anyone as we're brilliant and we're going to win the league. So there you go. Tim, a crew fan, they've obviously already lost Perry and G. He said, we need new security guards at Reeseheath that don't let agents in. Um, let's see if either of us mentioned the words Harry Pickering over the next <laughs> 10 minutes. Yeah, George, one of the most regular responses was from QPR fans asking for a left back to be suggested. Alex, John and Chris, all three of them. And Ben as well for Sheffield Wednesday. And I must say, this wasn't easy trying to find a left back that fits the bill for a championship side for the next six months that is in some way realistic as well. I'm still I'm still sort of affected here by our chat with David Webb on the podcast last week, where off the back of that, we discussed how it is so rare that you buy someone in January that will contribute both immediately this season, next season and beyond. You just have to look at the last few years of January transfers in the championship to see that it's it's unrealistic. And clearly in this window as well, we're seeing so few cash deals that teams really are feeling the pinch. So, I mean, I don't want to start with a negative, but you cannot have high expectations, I don't think, as a fan for your team in January. For QPR, I'll start with them. I just wonder whether they they, they might have received a small fee for, say, Samuel leaving early, whether Fenerbahce bought out his contract. They obviously received a, a sizable sum for Abere Eze and a lot of that is just going towards keeping the club on an even keel. But of all the clubs in the Championship, I would be confident that they could have a little bit of money available to funnel towards Crew's Harry Pickering. Whether or not <laughs> agents are allowed in at Crew, uh, which Tim doesn't want at the moment, I'm afraid the cat's already out the bag here. There were reports a few weeks ago that Blackburn were in for Pickering. And at that time, there were murmurs, rumours of a 500 or 600 grand release clause. I think anyone who's watched a lot of Pickering, certainly in League Two, but even more so with how well he's taken to League One football, would say that 500 grand, 600 grand for a fullback that really can raise the level of your team, certainly going forward, could be of interest. Now, the issue for Pickering is that there are question marks about him defensively and probably for QPR, someone who can shut down that left side is, is almost more important than someone who will be getting forward and creating goals and scoring them as well. But I just think Pickering's such a solid player. And I think if QPR are going to rebuild, because as we've discussed recently, they keep losing key player after key player. If they are to start to turn things around, they need to be signing players like Pickering, who are both young, have resale value of their own, but who we think could contribute to the team straight away. So I would say Pickering for QPR. I can't in good faith say the same for Sheffield Wednesday because I really don't understand what the situation there with regard to finances, whether there is any money realistically to spend on transfer fees. I would suggest probably not. The news last night that another advisor of Dej von Chanziri, Eric Alonso, has left the club, has resigned. There's plenty of rumours about why that is and whether it's linked to a manager that he advised Chanziri to hire that hasn't been hired. But it paints a picture of carnage behind the scenes at Sheffield Wednesday and it's nothing new to us. So, uh, I mean, it, it's such a tough one. I 
have to say that I would prefer to see Matt Penny get more game time. He started at left back for Wednesday in midweek. I know that the fans aren't 100% sure on him, but I really think Sheffield Wednesday need to look within and try desperately to eke out what they've got from their squad. First and foremost, they need a manager. I think that's more important than a left back personally. So whether it's Penny, whether it's Liam Palmer who can play on the left side, albeit not naturally, whether it's Adam Reach as part of a uh, of a wing-back system at left wing-back, I think there's something there in the squad already for Sheffield Wednesday. And given what carnage it seems to be behind the scenes, I'm just not so sure that there's going to be a huge amount of transfer business completed over the next few days. Uh, George, what were your scouting missions here? Well, I also had left back. So, and I, I discovered, as I think you might have done as well, that there aren't that many attractive propositions for sides in that position who are also kind of available my my mission was from a Sunderland fan asking for a left back because Denver Hume has torn his hamstring um we're not sure when he's going to be fit to play it looks pretty serious and he had a setback a couple of weeks ago we've seen a couple of players filling in for him McFadzine and Dion Sanderson but the feeling I think at Sunderland is that they need not only a player to play at left back for the remainder of the season but a natural left back of, of the required quality to really challenge Hume for that spot, even though I think Hume, when fit, is is pretty much as good as you can really get at League One level in that role. So who do you look for? I mean, Pickering was one that I thought of because, and this is no disrespect to Sheffield Wednesday fans, I think if he is a viable option for Sheffield Wednesday, I think he's probably a viable option for Sunderland as well, even though they're playing in different leagues. There's every chance the next season they could be playing in the same league. Still a possibility the next season Sunderland could be playing in a league above them. So he would be an option. I think he'd be a decent fit, but it'd be pretty boring if I just sat here and agreed with you, although (laughs) it would have made my life this morning a bit easier. But I'm going to flag a player who I I doubt is for sale, but if they could get him, I think Ibu Torre would be one who would be a nice fit at Sunderland. You know, he's at Salford. He is their left back and has been very important to them over the last couple of years. He's he's a triumph for, for non-league scouting, signing back in 2017, I think from Nantwich and has basically been ever present for them since. Uh, if you're looking, if you're dating back to when they joined the EFL, so the beginning of last season, if you look at the most productive defenders in English football since the beginning of last season, Joe Jacobson, unsurprisingly, given that he shoots from corners and is very good at it, <laughs> is the highest with penalties as well with 15 goals and six assists. Andy Robertson is next for Liverpool, three goals, 17 assists. Trent Alexander-Arnold, four goals, 15 assists, is third. Then Joseph Mills, which surprised me a little bit, on 17 with 10 goals and seven assists. And then in 15, so fifth, Harry Toffolo, who of course is having a brilliant season at Huddersfield. And Ibu Torre with five goals and 10 assists. He hasn't been in the same goal-scoring form this season, it's fair to say. He scored five goals last season, hasn't got one in the league yet this campaign. But he is an attacking player. He's technically a very gifted player. He's somebody who can be a dominant force in the final third. We're seeing very early on in Lee Johnson's tenure as manager that they are going to be very, very possession heavy, very possession hungry, playing with a high line and a back four. He's someone who who I just think is at the right age as well at 26. You know, you're not signing a young player who's there to develop. You're signing somebody who is first team ready with a lot of League Two experience as well. And we often see, you know, the best players in League Two are going to be capable at League One level. So he would be my shout, whether or not, um, I don't know if if Dave Jones could give his mate Gary Neville a call and thrash out a deal, but I have a feeling (laughs) Gary Neville would tell him where to go. Um, So maybe not one for the Monday night football table, but either way, I think Ubu Torre would be an interesting player for, for them to look at. 
Absolutely. Now, it wouldn't be the January transfer window if we weren't asked to find a striker for probably 80% of teams across the EFL. In fact, we both had an assignment for separate championship teams. I took Luton and you took Birmingham City. And it'd be quite interesting to see where we come out here. I mean, Mm. firstly... If Birmingham are looking for a striker, that makes me think that Lucas the Duke Djukovic is out of favour. And if that's true, I mean, Luton could do a lot worse than to bring Duke off the bench to support Collins, who is doing his best up top, but is out of contract in six months and who has missed quite a lot of chances this season, James Collins, I think it's fair to say. So I do understand why Luton fans would like a striker, both in the long term, but also just to put Collins under a little more pressure than perhaps Danny Hilton does at the moment. So I have got a a more realistic suggestion, I think. I'd like to point you to a club called Millwall FC, who in their last two league games have had four strikers on the bench. (laughs) In both of them, Kenneth Zahor has started and he seems to be Gary Rowett's flavour of the month up top. They've also got supposed wonder kid Troy Parrott on loan from Tottenham, who we haven't seen a ton of. Uh, John Daddy Bodvarsson's been getting a few minutes off the bench. And then there's Tom Bradshaw and Matt Smith, who really seem to have fallen out of favour. I think Tom Bradshaw's the one that I'll focus on here. Um, he's he started six of Millwall's first nine games, but he's clearly fallen down the pecking order. No start now since the 2nd of January. Last season in the Championship, he started 29 games for Millwall and he scored eight goals so it's not sensational by any means that goal return but what I would say is 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 not when you're looking at a player when you're looking at a goal scorer don't just look for a goal return in one season and stop there there's always a little bit more context isn't there and I think you know Millwall last season they only scored 30 goals total from open play in 46 league games and and Bradshaw did score a quarter of them seven from open play he has struggled to replicate his form for Walsall at championship level. But I think there's still a player in here. And I think Nathan Jones could get Bradshaw motivated in a way that it's hard to imagine him being right now, having fallen out of favour. I'd be looking at a loan with an option to buy, not an obligation, because you you, you kind of want to try before you buy. But you can't tell me that Gary Rowett wouldn't be happy to shift Bradshaw in order to use the wages in other areas of the team, because Mill will just have a surplus of strikers. Just to put some pressure on James Collins as backup to him to start with. But who knows? I think Bradshaw could be an interesting option. And I could see him chipping in with a few goals between now and the end of the season. At which point Luton fans, I dare say, might be interested in in seeing if he's worth a go uh, more permanently. But again, in January, don't expect the players that you sign to be contributing to your team the next season and beyond. It's it's unlikely, it's unusual, it's perhaps unrealistic in the current climate. And who knows, maybe Millwall would chuck in big Matt Smith as well. He uh, he really has fallen out of favour. He's barely started a game this season. Obviously not the mobile striker Jones might be after to, to lead a press, but I've got nice dreams of James Bree crossing from the right, big Matt Smith towering headers at the back post. So yeah, I think have a look at Millwall, give them a call. Uh, a bit of Tom Bradshaw on loan for the rest of the season. It might not be too sexy, but uh, I've done my best there. George, who did you find for Birmingham City? Yeah, I, I kind of came down on the same idea as you, as, as what are you looking for here, Birmingham? You've got Lukas Jukovic, you've got Scott Hogan, two very, very different strikers who have played well in a two together. Ita Karanka seems intent on playing 4-2-3-1, with John Terrell playing in behind Hogan. Uh, And it's fair to say that Djokovic, when he has played two up top, it hasn't really worked. But I always think we've seen the best of Scott Hogan playing off, you know, a big target man. And I think we've often seen the best of Djokovic when he's playing alongside somebody else as well. So 
it's a bit of a struggle. I assume what Birmingham need and what Birmingham fans want are strikers who will help in the short term, in the, in the same way as what you've said about Bradshaw there. You know, you mm. need a short-term fix now. And my, you know, if I was to be head of recruitment at a football club, I wouldn't don't think I would sign very many players over the age of 30. But there are two players sitting rotting on the bench at Stoke at the moment who I think can still do a job at this level. Both very different and both would offer something that Birmingham don't have. And they're Lee Gregory and Sam Vokes. Now, Gregory's 32 and Vokes is 31. That obviously doesn't mean there's going to be much longevity here, but I think they're still young enough in their early 30s to offer something. Neither Gregory or Vokes have become bad players on arrival at Stoke. Gregory is, even at worst, a very, very tenacious player, somebody who's brilliant off the ball. He's never going to score you a hatful of goals, but again, playing in a front two. I think with either Hogan or Jukovic could be really handy. And Vokes, whilst he might not be quite as big as Lukas Jukovic offers something a little bit different to him as well, where he's not just someone where you can aim for his head. He can hold the ball up well, bring others into play. He's been really successful playing in a two as well. So either one of those, I think would just add something a little bit different in the short term, maybe some goals as well, would help bring the best out of Hogan. You know, I watched the, the, uh, the Middlesbrough game a couple of weeks ago where Hogan finished off that brilliant team move. And I think that's obviously what Karanka wants to see from playing this kind of this system without a target man, but it doesn't happen often enough and they're lacking in goals. An outside shout, somebody who, you know, is more aligned with my recruitment uh, strategy would be Dion Charles at Accrington. Um, somebody who, again, is used to playing in a front two. I think he could probably play in behind as well, sitting in that uh, John Terrell role. He is somebody who is used to playing for a side who don't have much possession. He's very direct. He's somebody who would look to, to you know, press high off the ball when, need, when needing to. He's happy to take chances on and take shots on as well. Um, and again, has a different skill set to Jukovic and Hogan. And at 25, is a player who maybe would have that longevity, who would have that sell-on value or could possibly do the role for a few years. And, and is showing now at Accrington that I think he's ready at the end of this season for uh, for another challenge. So Dion Charles would be the riskier strategy. I just worry that Birmingham is the kind of club at the moment where so much is at stake, not just for the club, but also you look at Ita Karanka, whose job is on the line here, and how many more chances is he going to get? The issue with that is managers who know they need to get results in the next six weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, they're not going to invest in a process here because they have to save their own, their own jobs. And that's why the likes of Gregory and Vokes are probably more likely. Well, I must say all that means more from the man who told Cardiff City they should sign Max Waters before they were being linked <laughs> in the press. And, uh, and, and within the week, there he was doing the Ayatollah. Uh, four days until that window slams shut. You hate that phrase. So do we. But we have to say it contractually. So plenty more business still to be done before then. Let's see if any of those come off. Next up, it's the weekend preview. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This is the Totally Football League Show Extra Time part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Now it's weekend preview time and there is only one place, one man, one EFL managerial legend to start us off. I've already mentioned his name, Ali. Who is he? 
Mick McCarthy, it's his first league game in charge of Cardiff City. They're playing Millwall this weekend, of course, the side where he ended his playing career and started this storied and successful managerial career. Now, I've got to get something out of the way before I start talking about Mick's first game in charge of Cardiff. While he's been out of management, or at least out of UK management, some clever person on Twitter has made an unbelievable Deep House track with Mick McCarthy vocals as part of it. And you love Deep House as well. And as I prepared this uh, segment on Mick McCarthy, I had it playing in the background. So I think it's only fair that we hear a snippet of that before I get going. Fans will be right up for it tomorrow. They don't want to see us get slapped. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Give him a note and tell him to show his gob and support him. Right, so with that ringing in your ears, let me tell you about his first game in midweek against Barnsley. It was a two-all draw at Barnsley, the town where he was born, and he was an angry Mick McCarthy at half-time. 2-0 to Barnsley at that stage, and the manner of them too would have made this man sick. Two crosses from wide, thumped home by opposition heads, Cardiff players, Second best, second to the ball and 2-0 down. They did get back into it, Cardiff, with a deflected shot in the second phase following a corner and then a big Kiefer Moore header from a corner. So it probably wasn't a game for the purists. I don't get the feeling that the ball was actually in open play for much of this fixture. View from the Ninian, which is a Cardiff City podcast and website, described the first half as deeply unpleasant, as bad as they've been in recent weeks, with added lofted balls. So it's fair to say that enthusiasm for the short-term appointment of Mick McCarthy is low in some quarters. I mean, I had a look at the game. I had a look at the, the stats as well. And one thing stood out to me, one way that we can see, I think quite clearly in the stats, what one of the key instructions were here. Cardiff this season have on average, attempted 338 passes a game in the league and completed 260 of them. Last night, only 226 attempted, 138 completed, so much lower than season average. And remember, Cardiff not known for their possession play under Neil Harris either. And it was very much back to basics as well. The most noticeable trait was how little they passed it backwards or sideways. In fact, just 74 times they passed it backwards or sideways compared to a season average of 165 per game. So not hard to see what the instructions were. I'm sparing a thought for Big Kiefer Moore, who's going to have a a hell of a job on his hands up there on his own for Cardiff. The notable team news here was that Harry Wilson... Starloney from Liverpool, who who might have flattered to deceive, but it's fair to say that's um, something that you could level at the whole team, really, under Neil Harris in recent weeks. He was an unused sub here, which caught the eye. McCarthy said that Shea Yojo and Junior Hoylet had impressed him more in training. And also at the back for the first time this season, Sean Morrison, captain of Cardiff City up to this point, didn't start this league game for the first time in a game he's been available for. Instead, it was Aidan Flint partnering Curtis Nelson. The fact that both goals were headers from out wide probably is... Uh, it, it, I'm sure Sean Morrison wasn't happy about that sitting on the bench, but uh, he may have allowed himself a wry smile there given his strength <laughs> in the air. George, uh, it's hard to predict what will happen in this game between Cardiff and Millwall, but what I would like to suggest is that we try new rules just for one game only. I'm thinking specifically that the first team that scores from open play gets the three points and the game just stops there. (laughs) As soon as someone scores from open play, this game finishes. Or maybe more realistically, we could make open play goals count double because it's certainly something that Mill will struggle with as well. 
Yeah, I don't think either manager would approve of that necessarily, given where their strengths lie, as you know. Um, yeah, and of course, you mentioned how Mick McCarthy back to where he was born. Mick McCarthy back to where his managerial career really started mm. at Millwall in this game as well. And, and Millwall are a side who there isn't really a great deal to say because they were in quite poor form. They've now in okay form. They beat Huddersfield 1-0 a couple of weeks ago, which was came after four winless games. Um, they drew nil nil with Watford midweek. They, they rarely really threatened Watford at all. They had just four shots in the game. The two big moments for Millwall both came from Jake Cooper's head, unsurprisingly. Once an amazing header actually from kind of wide in the penalty area, about 14 yards out, kind of bent and hit the post. And then a couple of minutes later, he had a goal ruled off for offside. My pausing just as the ball was leaving the boot on YouTube suggested it was the correct decision. I'm sorry about that, Jake. But I, I think you kind of mentioned it there. Millwall's issue at the moment, and they certainly are, are, are defensively better than they had been a couple of weeks ago, and Gary Rowett has rectified that, has been the lack of form of Jed Wallace and what that has meant for them going forward. Because Wallace has been so important to any good form they've had. We think back to last season when there was that playoff push and Wallace was, you know, in terms of goal, goal involvement, every game, they were so reliant on him to do that. And in the last couple of weeks, whether it's by design and opposition teams looking to double up on him and make sure he doesn't get the service that he needs, or just a lack of form of confidence, Wallace hasn't been at it as we'd expect over the last few weeks. And when you consider who the other strikers are that play alongside him, Bradshaw, Matt Smith or Bod Varson, who have three, two and one goal between them, none of them are natural goal scorers. All of them, well, Bradshaw feasibly could be, but not really getting the service that he would require, especially whilst Wallace hasn't been in form. It makes them pretty easy to defend against in open play. And basically, at the moment, it's stopped the ball getting onto Cooper's head, either for the knockdowns or for the shots. And you kind of stop Millwall. Wallace was better against Watford. He, I think he had seven completed dribbles. They got the ball into a feet for him much more. But I kind of have the feeling that's because they were playing against the Watford side, who either, you know, Chisco may not have as much of an idea about who to target in terms of Wallace pre-match, or mainly just because I think Watford were looking to win the game. Again, they would have thought they should be winning. And therefore, you know, there was a bit more space in behind for Wallace to run into. But his form is going to be key here. I'm fairly positive that Millwall won't get sucked into the relegation battle, both Cardiff and Millwall on 30 points at the moment, seven points clear of Rotherham in 22nd. The odds from Paddy Power suggest that Cardiff are the likely winners, the home side. They're 13 to 10, the draw 11 to 5, Millwall are 21 to 10. I don't think there is going to be many goals here. And I'm just going to point out as well, nil nil, 13 to 2 could be one to keep an eye on. Absolutely. Um, now for what I consider to be the best game of the weekend in the EFL. It's in League One and it's between Lincoln and Doncaster. And there's certainly an extent to which these two were early season dark horses who now, if you look at points per game, are the top two in the division. Uh, now just horses, I think it's fair to say. I mean, I, I, I'll talk about... <laughs> the horse about... derby. The derby. <laughs> yeah. The Epsom derby. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I'll talk about isn't the Lincoln quite a big horse race as well yeah it is there you go oh this works right. and, 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 Doncaster and, and Doncaster has a track yeah. wow okay. so much we should have discussed this before we went on air I think I was going to say that Lincoln couldn't be doing much better but that segue couldn't have gone much better I must say <laughs> um, it's five wins and a draw in their last six they're at the top of League One five points clear of third as well it's an astonishing feat 
uh, from friend of the pod, Michael Appleton, who we have spoken to just a few weeks ago. Uh, a midweek win at Fratton Park away at Pompey. Very, very eye-catching. Probably hard to judge too much given Portsmouth's red card in the first half. It was a big boost for Lincoln, but absolutely no doubt who the better side was. There was no luck in the fact that they ended up scoring a winner in the second half. And it was notable again, and it always is with Lincoln City, who did the business, who scored the winning goal, because this is a side. There's a few things that you have to say about this side. A, it's a side without one star man, certainly when it comes to scoring the goals. They spread them around the team really, really well. And this time it was Morgan Rogers. The other reason why he ticks the Lincoln box is he's on loan from Manchester City. He's actually originally a West Bromwich Albion kid and Michael Appleton has great ties to West Bromwich Albion as well, especially the academy system. So it's another example of Appleton using his contacts, his knowledge of youth football to bring in players who contribute straight away, even if they haven't played much senior football before. It was a well-taken winning goal. Um, And yeah, it's an interesting one, this, George. Uh, I don't like going back on my word, but on a podcast on Monday, we both agreed that George Honeyman would be front runner for League One Player of the Season if the season ended today. I'd like to put George Grant into the mix. While Lincoln might not be a, a man with an obvious star that some teams towards the top end often have, I think Grant is the one if you have to choose one for this Lincoln side. He has been someone who has grown from, you know, pretty technical attacking midfield player, good from set pieces, but maybe not impacting the game too much in the final third in open play to, I mean, the heartbeat of this side. Appleton uses him in a number of different ways, depending on the opposition and depending on on on, t- on team tactics. He can be the deep lying playmaker, picking the ball up off the centre-backs, or he can really be in that number 10 role, as I say, impacting things in the final third in a way that perhaps he, he didn't do previously. He just is, is, is developed into such a clever player. I think he's been absolutely fabulous. Scully as well on the wing has been a real nuisance in recent weeks and a goal threat too. Every part of this Lincoln team is working exactly as you'd want it to. And it's their consistency of performance that has stood out against the teams around them. So I, I know that Donny come into this in rude health as well, George, which is why I think it's the game of the weekend. Yeah, they really do. Um, people need to start taking Dan Moore's Doncaster seriously as automatic promotion contenders because yes. they've won eight of their last 10 games. Uh, the two defeats came away at Hull. Again, they lost 2-1. And uh, against Shrewsbury, again, they lost 1-0 at home at a time where Shrewsbury were beating anybody they came up against 1-0. And I, I've been particularly impressed with them over the last couple of weeks because they lost... Ben Whiteman, their talisman, their captain, their best player to Preston. And I've got on my notes here, no Whiteman, no problem, because they have reacted brilliantly. There's been no drop-off at all in terms of their performance levels, in terms of their results either. Um, they've also looked, they initially lost influential left-winger Josh Sims, who's now returned from Southampton, which is a massive plus for them. Maja Gomez has been out injured since November, but he could be back in the squad. Um, I don't think he'll start, but he might be back on the bench here for this game as well. The midfield trio that we're now seeing employed by Darren Moore is Matt Smith, Aloni from Manchester City, and Reese James sitting behind Taylor Richards, playing a little bit more advanced, who's on loan from Brighton. And there you have some serious technical ability. I, I don't know if anyone listening saw Matt Smith's through ball with the outside of his boot on the weekend but wow I mean that is technique that we don't see too often I recommend looking out for it on on Twitter Taylor Richards is a player who is, is developing very quickly and can do things with the ball that not many can at this level we, we speculated who was likely to come in 
and replace Whiteman and anybody that had John Bostock on their bingo card can go and collect because <laughs> I certainly did not. But he's a player who, you know, quite often I think we've been stung by getting excited about John Bostock signing for teams because he's a name that carries a lot of weight because of, you know, he was of course a, a, a famous academy player at Tottenham given the, the transfer wranglings around him. And he's somebody who has performed at a high level before on the continent he hasn't done it consistently in England but his technical ability if given a run of, of, of games in the team if up to full fitness should make him you know a, a pretty high level player at, at this level at least and Darren Morris said that he's 50-50 as to whether or not he'll start this weekend given he hasn't played much football recently they're just a side a young side who are progressing so quickly and we're seeing players that maybe back in September or October we didn't think were amongst the best in the division showing now that they are and it's time to reevaluate what we think of Doncaster. I think they're going to make life really, really difficult for Lincoln here. They play without fear or abandon and it wouldn't surprise me to see them upset the league leaders. Lincoln are, of course, the favourites at even money with Paddy Power. The draw is 12-5 to five and Doncaster 5-2, to two, but I agree with you. I think we're going to find out here just how good Lincoln are and just how serious a threat Doncaster are to those automatic promotion spots. Magnificent stuff. We've also got a cracker in League 2 between Forest Green and Cheltenham. Uh, a short trip, that one, for Cheltenham. I'm not sure, can you call it a derby? There's not a huge amount of history I wouldn't say, between these two no. sides. Um, recent history, perhaps more than anything. There would have been a, a bit of a battle in non-league before Cheltenham were promoted and Forest Green followed them a few years later. But regardless, uh, more than geography, um, <laughs> a bit partridge this, isn't it? More than physical <laughs> more than physical geography, George. It's league table geography that oh, makes this no. <laughs> most interesting. Forest Green is second in the League 2 table with 41. Cheltenham fourth uh, in the League Two table with 40 points. So there's plenty riding on it. And I'll take Forrest Green, who were four without a win before they beat Orient last weekend. And Mark Cooper was offered and took credit for this win um, with a little tactical switch. Was it 4-4-2? Was it 3-5-2? Well, Cooper didn't really want to uh, confirm, didn't want to give the game away, but he, he was very proud of how that switch helped them to to beat Leighton Orient. They are one of the more tactically fluid teams in the league, which makes them pretty hard to prepare for. I dare say you can almost say the opposite about Cheltenham. They are very reliable in their tactical setup, but it doesn't make them easy to prepare for. Um, Cheltenham are actually the only team in the top seven that Forest Green have lost to this season. So um, they'll be looking to right that wrong. And even though they've lost key men in January, Liam Kitching moved to Barnsley and Carl Winchester probably the heartbeat of the team in many ways. He moved to Sunderland. They have signed Bailey Cargill. He's a, a centre-back who suits this team and this formation very well, having started the season with MK Dons, who play in a similar way. And he's already got an assist from open play, galloping forward last week against Orient. So Cargill is, is someone that Cheltenham will have to have a plan for. It seems like a weird thing to say for a centre-back in open play, but we've seen over the last few years this this trend of centre-backs joining the middle and final third in possession. It's very effective because it's unusual and it's difficult for players to know who they should be marking. So Cargill, I think, is one to watch here. Um, a pretty simple first objective for Forest Green here. Don't concede from a Cheltenham set piece, from a corner or from a long throw, and try and keep Alfie May and Andy Williams as quiet as possible in the box. And then I think they've got a really good chance. Uh, easier said than done, of course. 
But Forest Green haven't failed to score, haven't drawn a blank in 17 straight league games. So I'm really excited about this game. I think it's two of the better footballing teams in League Two and just two of the better sides in general. So, yeah, plenty to get excited about, George. What about things from a a Cheltenham perspective? Of course, they were uh, all the rage this time last week in their FA Cup fixture against City. Yeah, I think that Man City game is going to be quite an important moment in Cheltenham's season. You know, the game after that against Oldham, which we saw the last time, they, they won 2-0. And that came at the end of a seven-game winless run in the league, which we haven't necessarily seen under Mike Duff over the past couple of years. They weren't all bad results. You know, they, they took a point away at Newport when Newport's goalkeeper scored the longest ever goal and took the lead. So you can cut them a bit of slack there. They got a point away at Bolton, which I don't think you can really class as being points dropped. Oldham are the best away team in League Two. They picked up 20 points under Harry Kuehl away from home. So that 2-0 win was significant and they were good value for it. Alfie May and Andy Williams maybe haven't played as a front two as much as we would have expected, but between them, they had five and seven shots in the game. So they were creating chances aplenty for those two. Weirdly, that's also the amount of goals they've scored this season, five and seven. And in my opinion, that front two should be getting more goals. They should be on more than 12 goals between them at this stage. They're both talented. They've both got an eye for goal. They're both decent finishers. And that is going to be key going forward this season, I think, for Duff's side, is getting those two in those positions more often, which is what they achieved against Oldham. And it's the reaction from that Man City game that I think is interesting because physically and mentally, there's every reason for that to be a pretty draining encounter for them. You know, they were 1-0 up with 10 minutes to go and ended up not only conceding an equaliser, but conceding two more goals and losing the game 3-1. There's probably an argument to suggest that the the disappointing form in the run-up to the City game could in part be because of that. We've seen this before. We often see teams who have a massive cup game often slide a little bit, whether that's certain players ensuring they're not injured, whether it's nerves, whether it's anticipation, or just a lack of kind of big game occasion around the, the league games that see a slip. But the reaction has been really impressive. And I think that putting in that level of performance against, you know, probably the best team in the country has given them that belief back on the back of what's been a difficult run. I think it's shown them that actually, you know what, we are still a decent side. We can go toe-to-toe with the best. We can score goals against the best. And the performance and result against Oldham was full of confidence, was full of that of that attacking verve. So you know, it's a tiny sample size, but I have a feeling we're going to see now Cheltenham returning to that side that we thought because they had slid down the table on the back of that poor run of form. You know, it doesn't get much harder really than going to Forest Green at the moment. This is not going to be easy for them. and uh, But the odds suggest this is as level as it could possibly be. Paddy Power cannot split them. 17 to 10, the pair. 9 to 5, the draw. So effectively, all three results pretty much as likely as each other. And it's hard to disagree. There we go then. As ever at the moment, I'm sad to say our weekend previews come with a slight caveat and the hope that the games will be going ahead. Um, Weather has scuppered us a lot in the last few weeks and of course the uh, COVID outbreaks that various teams have suffered over the last month or two as well. You'll have to join Matt Davis-Adams and the gang on Monday on the Totally Football League show to get the lowdown of everything that does happen in the EFL over the coming weekend. But thank you for joining us today. We'll be back again next Thursday, of course. So make sure you're subscribed to this podcast feed. Until then, stay safe and goodbye. Thanks for listening to the Totally Football League show. Extra time in association with Paddy Power. You've been listening to the Totally Football League show Extra Time, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything Totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and by following at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. 
Check out all of The Athletic's football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on The Athletic app. The Totally Football League show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic. Hi, I'm James McNicholas and I'm here to tell you about the latest series from Beyond the Headline, the making of Big Sam. You see, Sam Allardyce seemingly can't quit English football and English football can't quit him. But why? Why does football keep coming back to Sam Allardyce? To answer those questions and more, you'll hear from Big Sam himself, those who have worked for him and those who've witnessed the full Big Sam experience. You can hear it all from February 1st and ad-free via the Athletic app. Just search for Beyond the Headline now. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.